Tonight on This Is Vinyl Tap, nothing really rocks and nothing really rolls and nothing's really worth the cost. In 1948, Columbia Records introduced the 33 and a third RPM long player record. One year later, RCA Victor introduced the 45 RPM single. Listeners now had a choice, only the hits or the full album. In the last half of the 60s, the best bands realized the potential of the longer format and began to build a cohesive body of music that must be heard unbroken. The arrival of downloadable music has increased the temptation to stay in the shallow end with the hits. This podcast believes every album tells a story. Tonight, we tell one of those stories. Well, greetings, everybody. This is uh, Tony Slagle from This Is Vinyl Tap. We are uh, on another journey tonight. Unfortunately, not in the Vinegaroon Saloon. We're, We're broadcasting remotely as we do from time to time. We had some uh, logistical issues. Yeah, I am uh, joined we as all utilized technology, <laughs> and I'd like to point out that we decreased our carbon footprint this Ooh. week in honor of all the uh, celebrities uh, flying their private jets to us uh, uh, Scotland to tell us uh, what to do. <clears throat> okay. On that note, I would like to say I'm joined tonight by. Our host, Doug Cooper. With my tiny, itty-bitty carbon footprint. I am in the and, vinegar room, however. And uh, as always, yeah, you're you're there uh, wallowing in the glory of it. Um, and then as always, uh, our humble producer, Jonathan J.M. Rowe. I'm coming to you from Solitary Confinement Studio in Leander, Texas. He's a Leanderthal. Uh, and I'm actually... Capsters. And I'm actually not in the in the uh, closet tonight. I'm broadcasting from the garage. Go, boy. <laughs> All right, move to the yeah. garage. I'm in the garage. I'm actually sitting in my grandfather's boat, uh, <laughs> 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 broadcasting. It's an old '66 uh, or '64 little bitty bass boat. I'm sitting in the middle of it. Um, anyway, uh, tonight we're talking about a monster of an album. This may be the biggest selling LP we've done where we devoted an, an entire episode to it. I think, um, I think it'd be hard to hard pressed to talk about another one. I I want, I do want to set the stage though. Okay. So it's, it's October, 1977. The number one single in the U S is Debbie Boone's you light up my life. The number one album in the U.S. is Rumors by Fleetwood Mac. Fine album. Th- this album we're talking about tonight is that's the same month it's released. Never mind the Bullocks by the Sex Pistols is released. 
Wow. And then out of out of nowhere, an album that was passed on by almost every imaginable imaginable label, an album that to this day engenders dismissal as overwrite tripe, overwrought tripe. I mean, it was released with little fanfare to become one of the best selling LPs of all time and the most profitable release in the history of modern music, beating even Thriller, which cost ten times as much to make. Is that right? I did not know that. Of course, I'm talking about who's thrilled. That's Michael Jackson. Okay, that's right. That's right. And of course, I'm talking about the unholy over the top collaboration between Jen Steinman and Marvin Lee a day, aka Meatloaf, bad out of hell. So, Doug, Tony, this is a Doug pick, I believe. It's a very Doug pick. And you, you're going to ask me a question. I'm going to say the same answer I almost always give. <laughs> hey, Doug, why'd you pick this album? Well, Tony, as you know, I am completely intrigued with albums that come out of thin air where there is no explanation for where in the world did this come from. <clears throat> and this is one of the most where in the world did this come from albums <laughs> that we will probably ever talk about. Now, there are some answers to where did it come from, but uh, on rock and roll radio, this is a great anomaly. I, I think I think you're right. There are some answers of where did it came from or where it came from. But I think the, the bigger sort of question is, how did it end up how it ended up? How did it end up being? What is it? The number is it the fifth top selling album in the uh, ever or third or something it's, like that? Something um, I've read today. It's 50 million copies of this album has been sold. And in 1999, so is that worldwide or just, you know, that's worldwide That's 30. It, I think there at one, uh, 1999, it had sold 35 million. That means over 20, what? 22 years. It sold an extra 15 million copies. Well, and and it's funny because it was a little slow uh, in revving yeah. up in in the U.S., but it was yeah. it was uh, bigger in the U.K. and in Australia of all places. It actually knocked uh, Saturday the Night BG. Fever off yeah. of off of the number one spot in Australia. Yeah, it's this album was huge in Australia and the U.K. Which um, is so interesting. <laughs> I, I I think it's worth mentioning before we before we kind of talk about this. Uh, first of all, I think it's kind of cool. We're kind of uh, to throw out a, a quotey pun here. We're doubly blessed tonight because we're talking about <laughs> we're talking about an album that was uh, that was equal parts uh, meatloaf and Jim Steinman. I mean, Jim Steinman obviously wrote all the music, but it, you wouldn't have this without meatloaf, right? Which brings uh, us to our first trivia question. Uh oh. What is that, Doug? We're going back in time. Can uh -huh. you play the back in time uh, sound, J.M.? <laughs> I don't know why that's what it sounds like when you go back in time. Um, <laughs> this album reminds us of a previous album we did in terms of this particular collaboration. We have all been here before. We have all been here. Did the before. album come out before this album or after this album? Uh, almost exactly the same time. All right. Ding, your time is up. Southside okay. Johnny. Oh, that was oh, so obvious. Yeah, yes, that is pretty obvious. Uh, You've got a remarkable singer and an original and remarkable songwriter and and a producer uh, coming yeah. together uh, to, to make this record. 
And I want to uh, I want to read a quote. This is from uh, Spin Magazine. Uh, they declared that this uh, is the seventh great mo- greatest moment in rock and roll was when Jim Steinman and Meatloaf met. <laughs> That's funny. You know, it, it, it's funny that you mentioned uh, that you mentioned little Steven because he plays a, a, a little bit of a part in this album getting made um, that we can talk about a little later. But um, I, before we before we get going, I, I do think it's worth mentioning because there's going to be a lot of people who listen to us. Hopefully there's a lot of people listen to us Millions. and they're and they're going to have this sort of meatloaf question mark over their head. And and, and I want to say that, you know, one of the major issues with this album, and I think the way people think about it is because. They think about it from the standpoint of the quote unquote rock critic, you know, these mopey, you know, shoegazing rock and roll has got to be serious stuff. And you can't talk about this album if you're going to take it too seriously. That's well, let's let that work. You really, uh, you can't take it seriously. Everything I was going to (laughs) say, I forgot about this for two weeks. What do I want to say about the self important? rock critic i'm talking about the person who reads the critics to find out what to hate and what to like not reading Mm -hmm. the critics to find out what's good and i thought about it for weeks and i put together something that i really wanted to say i feel pretty good about it um shut up (laughs) (laughs) i've worked on that and i feel like that expresses perfectly what i thought I think yeah. it's funny. I read someplace while I was, you know, poking around on the interwebs about this album uh, that David Lee Roth was talking about how the critics hated him. And he said, yeah, it's funny. They they hate me and they love Elvis Costello. That's because they all look like Elvis Costello, <laughs> 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 which I think is pretty funny. Um, yeah, you can't take this album seriously. That's no. not to say it's not. A, it's not a serious album in the sense of the musicianship on it and the songwriting on it are great. They're excellent. Well, Both of them are great, but it's got such a sense of humor behind it that if yeah. you ignore that, you're missing the whole point of this. Well, that's what uh, Todd Rundgren said got him through the production of this was that, he, <laughs> it, that it, if he had to look at this as being, had to take this at all seriously, he would have left the project. Well, but I, he was just laughing so much while he was making and, this and the, the thing is, what I wish we could have done is I wish we could have said we need everybody in our audience to write a little review and tell us what you think about this album. And then we would collect those. And all the people that didn't understand the humor of this album, I would have liked, I'd rather spend the hour making fun of them for not getting the joke. Well, I I find it interesting because um, the same critics who are going to, who, who likely badmouth this album probably loved Zappa (laughs) Um, I mean, and I know, I know my friend Jeff in the UK who listens to us is going to be foaming at the mouth by me comparing meatloaf to Zappa, but I'm only doing it in the sense that, uh, that the, again, the musicianship on this album is stellar. The songwriting is stellar. It's not avant-garde. It's not funky. And listen, I'm a Zappa fan, but that's the other thing. I think a lot of people who don't like Zappa, they miss the point of how funny that guy is too. They they don't get that either. So it's funny that critics would, you know, fall over over themselves about that guy. Um, But but they'll dismiss, I think this album got zero stars in Rolling Stone when it was. I think it got two. I think Jim Steinman's album got, 
zero stars. Oh, but okay. um, so let me. So th this is the thing that I, I told the, Doug this um, earlier. It's like the thing about this album is it is sophisticated music, but there is absolutely no pretense of this album being sophisticated. There, they, you have they to is, understand that. Yeah, you if, have if to understand you don't that. Understand that. You will yeah. think it's extremely it's, pretentious without without reason. Yeah, yeah. It's it's funny because it. it, it I, I I thought about this today. This album came out kind of right in the well, right when punk was kind of starting, yeah. and right yeah. when Prague was sort of having its heyday. And, and it, disco it, is entrenched on the radio, right? Yeah. Oh, I want to dismiss disco for a minute. Actually, I want to dismiss Don't disco a lot, but <laughs> I want to dismiss it from this conversation because I find that I, what I thought about with this album is it does kind of both of the things that prog and punk were trying to do and mash them together. And what I mean by that is it's, uh, it's over the top theatrical the mm -hmm. way prog is, but it doesn't take itself seriously. And yet it also That's looks back, point. it looks mm -hmm. back at rock and roll in the way yeah. the punk American punk in particular did. Yeah. Um, but also does not take itself seriously. Um, and, and I think that the combination of those two things really, really lends itself to this just being it's this is such a fun album to this, listen that's to. That's such a great point because yeah, it does imitate the the harken back to a better day for rock and roll that the punk does, and it does have all the complication and the grand sound that Prague does, but unlike both of them, <laughs> it's it's not going, it's not going to uh take itself seriously i think that's a fantastic point it's like going to vegas you're going to <laughs> vegas you're not going to do anything sophisticated you know well let me i think one of y'all ought to ask me why i have such terrific insight into the people that uh pan this album hey doug i have a question for you tony yes <laughs> why do you have such terrific insight into the people that pan this album because i was one Ah, I was, I was too. I was, I was too. Uh, like an eighth or ninth grader when I was so sophisticated and I would read critics and, and repeat what they say. And I would say, Oh, I'm so sophisticated. This, this, uh, music is not serious. This guy doesn't know the difference between a good line and a bad line. And, uh, yeah. the joke was on me and, um, Thank God for whatever age it is when you quit trying to, uh, <laughs> you know, like you're a that's, critic. That's a, that's a valid point, Doug. I was talking to Lindsay about this tonight. I, I said, you know, I've gotten to the point now where if I like a, a song, I don't really care who it's from. I kind of it doesn't it doesn't bother right. me if it's from somebody that I would normally turn my nose right. up at. Because yeah. if it's a good song, I was like, you know what? It's a good, I like this song. Who cares? Yeah. You, you um, know that song, 99 Loft Balloons? Yeah. yeah. I'm going to say right now in front of America, I like that song. I've started figuring out the thing that I, I think that I didn't like about it, which I think I share with a lot of critics at the time, is that it's not earnest. And it gets <laughs> this this album, this album gets uh comes off the hill, it gets compared to Springsteen a lot, right? As and it should. As it should, <laughs> you know, as it should. But it's, but, but it's so it, opposite. 
It's so exactly. That's what I was going to say. It's like it's it's Springsteen in the sense of Jungle Land, in in, exactly. in the sense of Born to Run. And you're sitting there trying to do a comparison, going, "Well, okay, Springsteen's doing all this bombastic stuff. He's changing keys. He's got strings. He's doing all in in their ten minute well, long the songs." Matters the same. The subject it is matter, the same. Exactly. The subject it matter is, is well, exactly the it's same. The same but it's the same, but slightly more adult. One of them is about <laughs> the the actual angst that you're going through. The but Steinman is about getting in the car on your way over, listening to the music, drinking a few beers, you get you know, buzz and you see that girl that you want to go talk to you know, the, the I, I, sheer excitement of it. I want to, I want to go ahead, Doug. I, I really feel bad about this because I'm about to ruin the podcast. Like <laughs> I'm, I'm going to cut to the chase right away. And I didn't mean to, but Jam brought up Springsteen and it, it completed a thought in my head. Um, Springsteen's writing about romantic, powerful, adolescent right dreams steinman is writing about nostalgia for adolescent powerful <laughs> adolescent dreams it's, well, it's like yeah he doesn't take it seriously anymore well he's an adult well he says in his the interviews that i saw with him one of the i read an interview with him today he said he has actually never really had his heart broken all these things that he's writing about they're all says, characters. They're all characters. Yeah. He said, I have yeah. never really had that my heart broken. I've never really well, had that, that I, kind of stuff. I want, I want to talk about Springsteen thing for a minute because Todd Rundgren in an interview a couple of years ago said that was another thing that 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 sold him on this was the first time he heard it, he heard the Springsteen stuff and he thought, This is this is poking poking fun at the guy and at the time <laughs> and at the time springsteen was on the cover of time which according to rundgren pit, pissed him off because he's like look this guy everyone's saying this guy's a savior of rock and roll and come on you know he's like so he yeah. saw this as a as a kind of a spoof of springsteen um and and it's funny because uh steinman says he always found that a bit puzzling the whole springsteen thing but i don't know how he how, if he's being honest yeah, i think I, he beat springsteen a lot and i my, think you can poke fun at the boss and, yeah. and at the same time appreciate what he did. my my favorite thing that steinman said though was he said springsteen is like west side story and he's more like a clockwork orange which i thought was perfect <laughs> um you know, uh, so, but yeah, Rundgren said the whole time he's doing this, one of the things that was compelling to him was how this was so much like that Springsteen sort of rural urban teenage angst theatrics, but taken yeah. to such another level <laughs> and so over the top um, yeah. that he loved it. Um, and you're right, I, Doug, and this is, this is, um, this has got a nostalgia component to it. it uh, it's like, a, yeah, it's like a caricature of life as an upper classman in high school. I mean, that's the thing that. Well, <laughs> well, and what's what's even what's even just real quick. What's even better about this, if you want to talk about the whole parody aspect, and I don't want to rely on that too much, but the fact that the main character on this album is a three hundred fifty pound dude <laughs> named Meatloaf, you know, is is the heartthrob. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. and I I love the fact that I don't think any of this works if Meatloaf is sexy. <laughs> it would. <laughs> It would just destroy it for me. 
but there's yeah well there's I, n- something- none, I mean yeah steinman and 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 meatloaf neither one of them are really all that that yeah those sexy guys uh, <laughs> <laughs> when you are an adult you laugh at your adolescent self but right. at the same time you cherish a lot of the feelings that you had at that age and mm-hmm. you you think about the you know that that romantic uh out of control our love is going to outlive death uh, yeah. all of that kind of stuff that you have when you're a kid and it's absolutely impossible as an adult um you 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 have a longing and a dear uh, a tender feeling towards that and at the same time you know it's ridiculous the things that you used to think and i think Steinman pulls those two together and he allows you to have that nostalgic um over the top feeling of i'm going well think about springsteen saying i want to die in your arms tonight in an everlasting yeah. That that is not an adult sentence, (laughs) but at the same time, he's not laughing at himself. Yeah, that that could have been. Yeah. In this album, this album, (laughs) it would be it would have been a joke. He's not uh, he's not singing about his with your tongue in it. Yeah, it was something like that. Yeah, he would have thrown something into or something about his Levi's bulging or whatever. You know, (laughs) before we get into the album again because we're, we're we're kind of finding all over this guy Steinman. I think we need to kind of talk a little bit about who both of these guys were. Well, yeah, I want to I want to get into a little bit of the history because I think that it's it's I think it's doing a disservice to not talk about like the the fundamental sort of building blocks of this album because it, it find it it's very very story. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And and I don't know if y'all know this but here at Vinyl Tap that this is Vinyl Tap. Sorry, Randy. Uh, <laughs> here this is vinyl tap we think every album tells a story unfortunately this, this one tells a <laughs> very a very story. compelling story that could go on for hours so um first of all what makes us uh experts on this album well meatloaf's from texas he's That's from right. dallas texas and he was a uh very good uh, a football player and supposedly was not a bad student and uh, somehow he in he went to college, and then he I can't remember, he went to Lubbock Christian College. He did, and then he went transferred to North Texas State, which I guess uh, which is now North Texas University. I think that's uh, the music he, college here. In, yeah, uh, so he started. Texas. Yeah, so when he was at, at, at as he was growing up, people always kind of told him that yeah you can sing. And he except just never for kinda, his mother. Yeah, except for his mother. And he had a yeah, and this is something that's gonna kind of uh dog him for most of his life, and, and including even today. He um he was mostly raised by his mother. He had an alcoholic father, and there's stories that his mom would go around Dallas looking for the his dad in, in various bars. So he kind of had a, a scarred childhood, and I think he spent a whole lot of time with his grandparents. And uh, he, but he was talented in football, and um, three hundred and fifty pounds in the state of Texas. 
you do not have the <laughs> option not to play football. Well, that's where he got his nickname, too. Yes, yeah. So he's just a big loafer. Well, what, what's funny about him is the guy had a career before this. Uh, um, not just not just the whole state because I mean it, we can't not talk about the fact that there's a the, there's a musical theater aspect to the 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 oh, past yeah. of this no, album because both to, Steinman oh, yeah. both Steinman and Meatloaf did it. But Meatloaf, you know, um, when did he move to California? Jam. It was he was being all mopey in his room in uh, or apartment in North Tech when he's going to North Texas State, and I, there was this story I read that he didn't leave his apartment for like three months. Uh, except for maybe to go get groceries or something. And his one of his friends just said, man, you got to do something different. And he said, well, he, he has extreme social anxiety. He just said he had a hard time just trying to fit in with people. But the only time he really felt good was on stage. And I think on a friend's advice, he just said, well, you should just go someplace to where you can be on stage. And so he went out to L.A. and I think pretty much immediately with the power of his voice and just his, he has a hell of a stage presence. Yeah. If you see the videos or you ever see yeah. videos of him on like Saturday night live or old, uh, great, great whistle. whistle. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's got an incredible stage act. And so he just kind of, he went out there, things kind of came easy to him. He just found, found parts. Well, he was also in a couple of bands. Yeah. Too. He was yep. in the meat meatloaf soul was his yeah. first band. And then he was in Popcorn Blizzard, and they actually released a like a blues psychedelic single called Once Upon a Time in 68. It, it's important to point out that originally he saw himself as a gospel and blues singer. Uh-huh. Well, and if you listen to that song, you can tell there's uh, you know, there's there's something going on there. got the part in hair and that was a traveling show I, i'm sorry to interrupt the flow here but i listened to uh justin Bieber, <laughs> and uh, me too <laughs> oh, really? yeah i don't know about hair uh, hair was God. probably the biggest phenomena of the um late 60s yeah late 60s early 70s it started in la um, I think it ended up, I think it was on maybe on Broadway it, it, at some it, place. It eventually but it, went to Broadway, I know, but it, I didn't know if it started where it started. But it the, just the big hit it. from it was Age of Aquarius. Uh, where Age of Aquarius. Oh, yeah. the death throes of musicals because you had Musical. all kinds of uh, musicals in the 50s. I remember when we were doing the Bob Dylan deal, uh, West Side Story was this huge, uh, huge record two years in a row. And that was kind of after West Side Story, it kind of dr dried up. And then here comes somebody that says, hey, all these hippies, they like they like uh, hair. So let's <laughs> well, it, it was all about the counterculture, I believe. There was nudity in it on stage, which was shocking at the time. Um, yeah. And so it got a lot of publicity for that. Bad nudity. And there was a lot and there were a lot of people who got their starts from being in hair. Right. Uh, Meatloaf being one of them. Another guy named Jabriath, who uh, ended up moving to New York, too. He was considered a little time for, for for as yeah. the American Bowie. Clara Bowie. 
kicked off, Godspell, hair kicked off, oh. uh, Jesus Christ Superstar. You, you probably wouldn't have Andrew Lloyd Webber if, you, if it weren't for hair. It, it kicked off. And then one of the, we'll get to later, one of the things it kicked off was Rocky Horror Picture Show, but we'll get to that. He was on the, he was in the production of hair on, on the West Coast. Um, he made an album. This is one of the, another thing. Everything with meatloaf is really confusing. So he made, he got a, a, a contract with Motown and he was going to sing with this woman, John Stoney Murphy. So they made an album together. Stoney and Meatloaf. And it actually, I think, had kind of a hit on it. And then uh, something happened. And Stoney was taken off the album at one point and somebody else's vocals were put in. And then Meatloaf, he got replaced by somebody else. So it was no longer Meatloaf and Stoney. Actually, who had the hit is a little bit confusing because at one point it was Meatloaf and Stoney. And I think they had the original hit. And then the album was actually released. And I think there was two different people actually singing the part at one point. Well, and, and Motown forced Stoney on him. They signed him, but said, yeah. you're, you're only going to yeah. do this if you do it as a duet with, uh, with Sean Stoney Murphy, who was also in hair, by the way. Meatloaf, he didn't, I don't know if he ever actually lost the contract, but for whatever happened, whatever reason, he went back to the production of hair and it went out onto the East Coast. And so he was traveling with that. So he went out onto the East Coast did the hair thing for a while. And there he started making some friends with guys named uh, Rory Dodd and another one named Ellen Foley. And then Jim Steinman, this guy who was writing musicals, and he started uh, doing arrangements for Broadway shows. Meatloaf was auditioning for one of the parts. He was auditioning for the part and all the people listening to the audition passed over him. And Steinman said, well, what about the Meatloaf guy? He's great. Well, and uh, they said, there's not a role for him. And he goes, well, we need to write one. (laughs) Yeah. So he, he, the musical was called more than you deserve. Right. And the song he sang was, I'd love to be as heavy as Jesus. Um, and the, and the funny story about that was when he was done, Steinman evidently walked up to him and said, by the way, you're as heavy as two Jesuses. Um, but well, and um, the, the funny thing is when he was, uh, auditioning, you, you guys know what, uh, song he sang in the audition. Uh, uh-uh. stand by me. Got to give your heart to Jesus. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, right. Well, he was and, a gospel but, singer in his own mind. He, um, but just real quick prior before that, cause this is going to play a, 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 bit of a part he also got cast in the la cast of the rocky horror picture show playing the parts of eddie and dr scott everett or everett scott um and then of course he would reprise the role of eddie in the film version in in 75 and rocky horror plays a a, kind of a big part in the um in this album taking off in the states the character of meatloaf um and in my mind that uh Hot patootie, bless Hot my patootie. soul.
I think that's the best song on the album. I think I, yeah, I, I think agree it steals the show. But and, and um, we get to hear that fantastic voice for the first time. Yeah. But but he also, as JM had mentioned, he also joins the uh, Lampoon Roadshow of Lemmings in '73. And he's a stand-in for John Belushi, which yeah, I never a, really. Yeah. yeah, he's an understudy or whatever. But he also that's uh, he got Jim Simon a job as a piano player on that on that um, uh, show. That's how the two of them were able to kind of work work some stuff out. <laughs> So, so, so we've got kind of the soup that this is coming from. So you got Jim Steinman, who's, uh, he's not really a frustrated, uh, arranger, uh, composer. He, he just kind of wants to do something different. But uh, you, you say he wasn't frustrated. I think he might've been a little bit cause he'd had two, he'd had a musical he'd had that a he'd flop. started on. Well, he'd yeah. had the dream engine, which was a musical he'd written in college that he'd had had some success in trying to kind of selling, but it kind of went nowhere. And then he decided, well, I'll just rewrite it. And he he rewrote it as a sci-fi version of the Peter Pan story right. called, ne- which, called Neverland. Which is um, very important because um, what we were talking about with adolescence and that whole... Uh, yeah, this and there's some songs that Peter come... Peter Pan, uh, Jim Stamen will tell you that that is the story that is in everything he does and it's not the lost the, boys and golden girls it's a song that yeah, uh, simon it's not it's not the peter pan that's been um made genteel by disney or uh, anybody else it is uh <laughs> gangs fighting for turf and uh yeah he, i mean he, you know he's it's a poignant scene when peter pan goes and finds wendy's 31 years old Oh, you're too old. <laughs> well, yeah. what what's kind of intriguing about this stage in his career is some of the people that he actually worked with. When he workshopped the Dream Engine uh, at one point in D.C., uh, Richard Gere was a star of it, which is kind of funny. <laughs> oh, and then wow. and then when he was recording, uh, he was working on trying to get a director for the the um for the dream engine he started doing you know what they do what they call it that a a, um, a demo tape of the songs or whatever and uh, on that included uh, a song we'll talk about tonight called heaven can wait and bet midler was singing the lead on it um so the first time meatloaf ever heard heaven can wait was the bet midler version of it and and then in addition there were talks of having bowie star in this thing like having (laughs) bowie be the the person that that did it so it's just kind of so his guy, he's, yeah. yeah, he's like touching all these pretty, you know, I mean, it's really, really remarkable. Um, as you said, that there's, that there's these two kind of unassuming guys that just are like, uh, I don't know, like the sun with all these really famous well, planets orbiting around sudden, them. So Meatloaf and Jim Steinman decide to partner together and they decide they want to do an album. And if you watch that documentary, that uh, the classic albums documentary, Jim Steinman said that was never on in his playbook. He never had the idea of wanting to make an album. But when he saw Meatloaf, he just kind of said, I've got to write something for this guy. Well, and, Jim Steinman immediately understood the importance of Meatloaf's extremely unique and uh, right. You know what? Voice. You know what? Rundgren, I think, put it perfectly. He said Steinman was like Cyrano de Bergerac. Yeah, meatloaf is like meatloaf. Meatloaf is like whoever the other guy is that nobody knows. 
Yeah. And well, you uh, know, Jim Stammen wanted to be a singer songwriter and do all the singing himself. But yeah, we'll get he to had that a, later. Uh, messed up nose. And he said yeah. that it was excruciatingly painful for him to sing. And well, then he finds meatloaf and there he goes. Well, it's, there's an early, it's funny. Express what I say. It's funny you say that because there's an early demo version of Jim Steinman singing Heaven Can Wait as well um, from the early 70s. But um, yeah, there were three. So when he when he wrote the Peter Pan sci-fi thing, there were three songs that were part of that, that Steinman and Meatloaf thought, hey, we can we can do something with these and kind of maybe flesh them out a little bit. One of them was Bad Out of Hell. One of them was Heaven Can Wait. And one of them was a song called The Formation of the Pack, which was retitled as all revved up and no place to go. So with those kind of three foundational songs, just as JM said, Jim Simon started writing stuff for meatloaf. I don't know how much meatloaf had to do with that stuff. It's kind of, I'll be honest with you. There's a a a, lot of, of, of sort of, I don't know. Jim Simon will say that it sounds like he's trying to be charitable, but he says, yeah, I guess since we were together so much that he influenced what I was saying. And then on the other hand, Meatloaf will say, oh, yeah, that was about my girlfriend. That was right. I told that. So what they do is a very unusual thing. <laughs> they, they just start rehearsing these songs with Jim Steinman playing piano and Meatloaf singing. And they start bringing along Rory Dodd and Ellen Foley. And they do make a demo tape, and Meatloaf said that that demo tape just went absolutely nowhere. And so they started shopping around these songs live. They would, yeah, that is go, amazing. They would actually go into a record company's atrium or whatever, and actually play the songs for them. And there's absolutely nobody would 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 take them and nobody understood uh, anything that was going on. Nobody could understand the, what was going on. The so, best rejection they got was from Clive Davis. That's about what I was going to say. Yeah. OK, Clive, you go ahead. So Clive Davis is pretty much music royalty. So he, whatever he says is pretty much, you know, uh, gospel. Who, who does he work for? Well, he started Arista. But he's worked for a bunch of other people before that. Um, At this he, point in the story, he's with CBS, I believe. Yeah, CBS, yeah. So um, <laughs> here's the quote from Clive Davis after watching them uh, perform. Do you know how to write a song? Do you know anything <laughs> about writing? If you're going to write records, it's got to be like this. A, B, C, B, C, C. I don't know what you're doing. You're doing A, D, F, G, B, D, C. <laughs> you don't know how to write a song. Have you ever listened to pop music? Have you ever heard rock and roll music? You should go downstairs when you leave here and buy some rock and roll. <laughs> that is that is a, that is so funny. Um, what? And I get you know, my favorite is when he went to uh, Warner Brothers. Did y'all hear that story? Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Okay, so they're doing their live deal and. When Meatloaf sings, Stamen says it shakes everything in the room because of this voice. So he's playing this piano and it has the uh, it has the executives family pictures all over the. (laughs) (laughs) Stamen keeps going crazy. Meatloaf's going crazy. All the pictures fall off of the piano and smash on the floor and 
like there's 40 people listening and every executive at Warner Brothers says, this is just horrible. This is no go. (laughs) But one guy was listening out in the hallway and he said, I like this. This is good stuff. (laughs) Any guesses? He's been on our show before. Randy Newman. Randy Uh, Newman. Randy Newman digs it. Randy Newman gets the humor. Randy Newman. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Randy Newman said that uh, humor doesn't work because it doesn't work. It doesn't fit into um, rock and roll time. You don't have you don't have time to laugh. That's funny. (laughs) And Um, he dig this. He digged uh, meatloaf. Yeah. Well, before we get to the, the penultimate thing where Rundgren gets involved, I do think it's it's very interesting to mention just a little side trip where Meatloaf played on the Ted Nugent album Free For All in 1975 <laughs> and sang yeah. he sang half of the songs on it. Uh, yeah. Well, that makes sense. They're both over the top. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, so so what what kind of gets things going is uh, Mark Moogie Kliegman, who is uh, one of the founding members of Utopia with Rundgren, Todd Rundgren, uh, brings he hears this and brings it to Todd Rundgren and says, I think you, you need to you need to do something about this. Um, and uh, and Rundgren, just like everybody else, like Jam was ex- explaining, heard them perform it live. Yeah. You know, um, and they lied to him, too. They told him they'd been signed or been given a deal by RCA um, or a subsidiary. A, oddly enough, a subsidiary of RCA called Utopia Records. And they lied about that. And then Rundgren discovered that didn't happen, um, which meant he he, had been, he essentially paid for the album, all the production himself. Because it's Todd Rundgren. He starts finding some of the most who's who, you know, the, the A-list of musicians at the time. And not only that, he persuades Roy Bitten and Max from the, Weinberg from the, from East, the Street East Street Band, Band yeah. to come in and start off with these guys. And I think Roy Bitten winds up playing on every song except one or two. I think it, Max it, Weinberg plays on three songs. You got, you got to think that that was part of his whole Springsteen spoofy thing. I'll get these guys in and we'll just yeah. seal the deal type of thing, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. But, but he also, who's he get to play sax on this thing, Jam? Edgar Winter, which also makes us an expert on this album because Edgar yes, Winter. He's from, from he's Texas from Beaumont, well. He's from Beaumont, Texas. I think he's the first person <laughs> that I ever saw play a guitar. Um, but he's also an an, an, he's also an excellent uh saxophone player and his work on this is exemplary he does some really good work that's what he does he plays the sax on it it's great so one of the things you know we're sitting here singing the praises about todd rungan but i think it's funny you know he may be a great producer but we talked about this a little bit on the um xtc skylarking episode he evidently has some issues when he's mixing this stuff and his mixes on this were not suitable. So interestingly enough, they get Jimmy Iovine to, to, (laughs) to mix this album. And uh, who is that jam? Jimmy Iovine has worked with so many people. Uh, Well, let's put it. He's worked with a lot of good people and he's worked with. Why is he interesting here? Well, he has worked with Bruce Springsteen. He was 
instrumental in mixing um, Born to Run by Bruce Springsteen, yeah, which came right. out a couple of years before, beforehand. So he was kind of an up-and-coming guy, and his work with Tom Petty, you just cannot well, I, I just find it, and we've talked about this, I think, when we talked about Dire Straits, that he evidently was attached to the hip to Roy Benton, but whatever. Um, yeah. But but what's funny that he did, that he mixed this, none of his mixes worked either, except for his version of Two Out of Three Ain't Bad is the one that's on the album. Which became the first hit. He was also listed as being a, a possible producer, but both uh, Steinman and Meatloaf said, nah, we want Rundgren. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so should we All get right. to the album? Oh, yeah, let's get to the album. So we got album, Bad Out of Hell. Side one, track one, title track, Bad Out of Hell. Tour de force. I mean, <laughs> everything well, you need to know it's about. Like, it's like yeah. a uh, overture, mm-hmm. in in mm-hmm. that it's a huge giant. It, not only for deal, but it doesn't play the themes from all the songs, so it's really not an overture. Everything you need to know about Meatloaf in one song. <laughs> it's got Meatloafian song of all. Yeah, it's well got everything. It's also yeah. the most Springsteenian track on the album too. I think. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Um, um, you, there's there's something very interesting about Meatloaf, and uh, you, he had two kinds of music. He was really grow that he really was into growing up. One was rock and roll, and the other was opera. Would anybody like to guess? Which composer was his favorite? Wagner. Uh, Wagner, yeah. <laughs> I think Steinman felt that way too. Well, he kept no, I'm saying sorry, it. that's what I meant. It was yeah. Steinman. Yeah. And yeah. when you hear this, I one of the things I remember is when I heard this, I, I used to describe it as Wagner for adolescent. I remember reading in uh, Rolling Stone, uh, their book, it said it was Wagner for adolescence. And uh, <laughs> I, I spent a lot of time thinking I was ready to write for Rolling Stone after that. <laughs> well, it, the, the song starts off with two minutes of instrumental over the top craziness oh, yeah. before yeah. the lyrics even kick in. And it's great. It's so great. We're up. Uh, Todd Runger plays guitar like that anywhere else. Well, he is. So we talked about his his guitar playing on this song is phenomenal. I think it's his best he's ever played guitar on any track. But what's so this music's so liberating because yeah, you've already quit taking yourself seriously, so you can do whatever you want now. Yeah, and everybody kind of picks up that vibe and and goes over the top. Well. And it's interesting because Rundgren says that for, and it makes sense for when they're doing this, when they were recording this album, they tried to do everything as live in the studio as they possibly can. Yeah. And there's um, actually the, the piano and the drums are bleeding into each other. Into the mixes. Yeah. But, but 
he it's it's funny there's a little bit of a of a disconnect or a, or a, a different sort of two sides of the story about his the the uh, motorcycle sound on this song uh meatloaf says that he uh, rundgren just fiddled with that they that steinman was begging for this motorcycle sound begging 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 and so uh meatloaf says that um that Rundgren just twiddled a couple of knobs, said, you want to hear a motorcycle sound? Okay, did it, and then launched straight into the solo. Rundgren actually says, we didn't have time to fiddle around with me trying to figure out how to make my guitar sound like a, a motorcycle. So that's, he, Rundgren says that was overdone. What is Rundgren overdone. playing? Um, what kind of guitar is that? What are, what effects are going on to make that? You know, I was, I, I was thinking about sound. this. I, it almost sounds like a Rockman to me. Because when I when I hear that <laughs> solo, it sounds like uh, it almost sounds like um, Tom Schultz. It sounds like a, a Boston solo. Well, he that's, did. Uh, that's what's frustrating is I don't know of any video recording of Rundgren playing this. Um, was uh, was the Rockman sure. around in '77? I don't think it was. No. Or well, it may. Well, and this wasn't made in '77. No, think it, it was, was earlier. You're right. It was so, earlier. Yeah, because I mean, he he's not. He wasn't opposed to using that because he used it on the XTC album. Yeah, um, yeah. one out. Yeah, it sounds like a. I mean, it is just a phenomenal. Great the, sound. Yeah. Well, and that and that sound. and it's funny because there's the part in the song where Meatloaf sings, "I'm going to hit the highway like a battering ram." On a silver yeah. black phantom bike, and the guitar that comes in after that. Oh yeah! Regardless of the regardless of the motorcycle sound that he makes, the guitar that comes in after that bit of the song is maybe my favorite moment in the whole song. I love it, and every, I'm walking around listening to the song, and I can't help but stop and play air guitar to that bit of the song. You know, like a big dope. Um, it's it is. There's so much energy in this song. Yeah. It's, and it stops and starts and goes well, again. And it, I, I hesitate to say this because the last time I said this, cruel and unkind things were said to me by my partners on this program. But uh, this song is on my uh, workout playlist. <laughs> Uh, I don't remember well, what cruel got, things he that, said, that, that, but he's got some nice said, reps. I, I, I use this to keep myself in shape, and you brought up uh, a pear shaped uh, fruit, <laughs> not a non flattering fruit. Um, well, I, my one of my favorite things about this song is Steinman talking about why. You know, yeah. he's like, I always loved these crash songs. I was obsessed with crash songs, you know, leader of the pack and all this stuff. And he said, <laughs> I am going to write the ultimate crash song. And I don't know. I mean, he's got a point because I don't think there's another song in rock and roll where the main guy crashes and then is alive to witness his beating heart flying yeah. out of his chest. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, and I, I love, love it, man. I, I just love this. Hey, yeah. you know, I may be dead, but that doesn't mean I'm going to stop narrating this story. <laughs> well, you're right. And I and I love that the whole little uh, the first part of the song where he's talking about just leaving the girl behind like a bat out of hell. And yeah. then when you get to the part where he crashes, the bat out of hell is his heart ripping out of his chest and flying across the sky. And she's um, the yeah. only thing in this whole world that's good and pure. And yeah, yeah but but it's, it's so that the, that is the, that's a very Springsteen line. It's so different yeah. from Meatloaf than it would be from Springsteen. No, it is. it is. It is the ending of this song, the way that it just drops down, and it's almost like I guess forty-five seconds of just ooze and ahs. Yeah, it's great it, with those chimes coming yeah. in. It's just 
how well if this this album this this song it's not my favorite song on the album but it is worth price price of admission it's my favorite song on the album it's hard for me to say it's not but it's not um it's a close second but steinman when he's talking about this song said that uh, everyone involved in it um before they get to the the bridge uh where he crashes thought the song was over with and Simon's like, no, 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 no. Yeah, we got, we got <laughs> no, a crash. Got part three, and they're like, yeah. what are you talking about? The song's already forty minutes long. He's like, yeah. no, 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 we got to do this. And thank God he did because it's great. It's so great. Uh, this is worth. I agree, worth the price of admission, and what a, a hell of a way to start the album off. It it's, is fantastic. Great again, introduction it's to like a fusion or something is happening. There's yeah. so much energy coming out of this. It, and you really, anybody who can listen to this song and be a sourpuss about it and discount it for what it's so much fun. This is exactly what rock and roll should be is this song. All right. So um, we're going to move on unless there's more accolades we want to throw in this song. We're going to move on to the next song. You took the words right out of my mouth. Hot Summer Night, which was the first single off of the album. Meatloaf said it was written because he he went up to Jim Simon and said, hey, could you possibly write a pop song that wasn't 20 minutes long? <laughs> so, so he did this. And this, of course, is a song we talked about earlier that got Steve Popovich to back the album. It's not 20 minutes long, but it starts off with that spoken word dialogue between Jim Steinman and that that actress. Marsha McLean, who played uh, D. Stewart on As the World Turns. <laughs> <laughs> I so remember again, I remember as a little kid, my mom would say, now you got to be quiet. I'm going to fold laundry and watch my show. And it was <laughs> watch your stories. I'm going to watch my well, story and, and, and going. And, and this is the last time I'm really going to dwell on this, but going to the whole spring scene thing that that uh, this song has that real like obvious Phil Spector wall of sound exactly. thing going on. Yeah. And then the it's drum. got that, and Boom. then it's got that Springsteen, that, that, that Springsteen kind of, I don't know why it reminds me of it. Cause it's Phil Spector too, but that, that boom, 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 drum Wait, thing going on. Because it's his drum. Oh, leader of the pack almost. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, oh man. And it's, it's, it's really, it's really great. Um, And I'm a yeah. sucker for hand claps and the way the song <laughs> fades out with hand claps just gets me yeah. every time. It's it's fantastic. It um, it also points to um, it's so satisfying, ladies and gentlemen. As a member of the staff here at This Is Vinyl Tap, one of the most satisfying things in the world is to have a notion and to have that notion confirmed as you do your research. My notion has always been that Jim Steinman starts with a phrase and writes the song based on the phrase. And if you look at the names of all of the uh, songs, you'll realize that's true. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty. Bad well, out of the, hell, took the words right out of my mouth. The, Two the, out of three, eight. Heaven bad. can wait. I, I, wanna, I, I read someplace, and I can't remember who it was. It might be Meatloaf's manager or whatever. said, Jim Steinman, what he, he, he just wrote these, just exactly he said. He wrote these lines down, and the guy said, okay, what do you got to do? He's like, well, I got to write a song based on this concept. <laughs> so. Yeah. And he does that in his whole career. I mean, 
we're not just talking about meatloaf anymore. We're talking yeah. about uh, all the other enormous hits he had later. There's always a sense of humor. Every time that you think that Steinman is doing something kind of grandiose, maybe a little bit pretentious, it's almost like Steinman realizes where he's going. There's always yeah. a wing. Let me ask Tony a it. question. Yeah, Doug. Where is his tongue during this entire album? <laughs> Firmly planted in his cheek. <laughs> now, if you had asked me where Meatloaf's tongue was, I'd say it was down Carla DeVito's throat, evidently. <laughs> but yeah. that's another story. Okay. Um, well, I don't think anybody asked that. <laughs> all right. Moving on to song number three, Heaven Can Wait. As I mentioned, the oldest song on the album. Heaven can This is a ballad that may be not as ironic as some of the others. Well, I I will say that, um, listen, Meatloaf's got a set of pipes on him, but I much prefer the non-ballad songs on this album. The ballad songs on, on this album, and I don't want to say they're bad because they're not bad. They just, uh, they pale in comparison to everything. It doesn't take anywhere new. There's nothing new about this song. In fact, some of the lyrics are actually kind of bad. Um, but I almost think that's on purpose. And I think one of the things that Meatloaf does very well, if you actually see the song performed live, it is earnest. Um, there's there's no band behind him. It's 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 a piano and orchestra behind him. It's it's and an opportunity to realize how fantastic his voice is his yes exactly and the way that he performs it is i think is it dumb. is it better than bet midler is that what you're saying i think it's better than <laughs> bet midler because bet midler you know bet bet midler is burlesque right i mean and and this is not this is not something that it, I, I tell you uh, what if i ever be. if i ever sang a song and then meatloaf came behind me and sang it <laughs> i would <laughs> spend the rest of my life trying to capture copies of me singing it and destroy all of them. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, talking, I do. I, I don't know that we've even touched on how absolutely exceptional his voice, his voice is. is. And yeah. it is, it's complete. All right. Let's play. And I know. I don't Who understand. Seems it. like meatloaf. Who does meatloaf sound like meatloaf? Yeah. You're yeah. done. There's no, there's yeah. nobody. What's his vocal range? I yeah. have I can't tell you what it is. Well, and it's not it's not just his vocal, it's not just his voice. It's it's, it's he it's puts he puts so much into it, the intensity that he brings to every song. Uh it, it it's uh it's pretty remarkable. I mean, just it, not just on the album, but just anytime he's singing this stuff, you can tell he's putting a hundred percent, hundred and ten, hundred and fifty percent into it. Well, well um, you know what yeah. um Steinman said about Meat Lump, he said. He's that cliche, one hundred and fifty percent. And he said, <laughs> um, "You know, they had a. You know what their first huge argument was about? Uh, yeah. Steinman wanted him to play the character that he created called Meatloaf, and that meant that he would go out on the stage and he would, like a 
like a leopard in a cage, walk back and forth across the stage, staring at the audience, never talking to the audience. But he compared him to a Marvel comic character and he would play that part out throughout the uh, the show because Stamen's still in the theater. Right. And Meatloaf wants yeah. to be a rocker and said, and he said that one night he came out and said, All right, uh, I forget what city it is. All right, Minneapolis, you ready to rock and roll? You ready to party? And Stamen lost his mind. He said, <laughs> you just destroyed everything and became like every other idiot rock band that comes into this town. Yeah. And uh that they had a huge argument. Meatloaf felt like uh, nobody respected him as a person, but just as this character. Right. And he went out and uh, he's yeah. at some truck stop and he runs smack dab into the front of some uh, semi that has like the devil on its uh, grill and just smashes it, cuts his forehead. He has to get stitches. They lay, later found a perfect balance. But, you know, what's funny is these two guys love each other. They talk wonderful about each other. And they, they were in a lawsuit each with other. each other. Yeah. Right. And the, they, they continued to be friends during the lawsuit because they they felt like it was their lawyers fighting, not them. Yeah. It's yeah. such a bizarre deal. It is. It is. Uh, OK. We ready to move on to the next song? I think so. OK. This this is my favorite song on the album. Is all revved up and no place to go. Okay, I'm going to say this song to me never really, it starts off great. After that, it never really gets off the ground until the end. The way that it finishes it, 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 it's when it does that starts getting to that double time part i'm i'm blown I, away by it I, I love the way it starts off with edgar winter's saxophone in it it's incredible um i love meatloaf's vocals on it because they're not yep. i mean they're great but they're not that kind of his, histrionic over the top that the rest of the album is and it makes you kind of step back and go geez this guy can sing yeah um, yeah, yeah you know um but then when he does get to belt it out at the yeah. very end, that's where I'm just, and he's got all the backup singers. I mean, uh, it's, it's not Carla DeVito. She's actually the one that yeah. toured with him, but right, it's, right, uh, right. Uh, well, that's why, yeah. that's why I said the thing about sticking his tongue because he never did that with <laughs> Ellen Foley. <laughs> yeah. and, and Rory Dodd. I mean, those guys, let's give some prop to those guys. Those, Ellen Foley and, and Rory Dodd are just uh, fantastic singers. And, um, Great job backing them up. What's your thoughts about this song, Doug? Well, I love all the songs, um, but you're right about it being different, and it offers you one more chance to figure out that this guy's voice can do whatever it wants to. Um, it, it it's also I like I just, the histrionics thing. Um, oh, I do too. But that you get that in spades on this album. It's kind of nice. No, no, you when do. He's, and when and he's singing this way, you know the. Uh, uh, you remind me of a, a comment that Jim Steinman says that's very important for us is to share, especially for all the people taking themselves so seriously. Uh, he talks about Alfred Hitchcock is yeah. 
someone he admires a great deal, and he thinks that his movies are funny. And he doesn't mean ha-ha funny. He means a different kind of funny that's more subtle. And he says, that's what I've always tried to do. And the quote that um, gave me great comfort in that it um, it backed up my thinking was that extremism is funny. <laughs> and so for all those people that take this album seriously, just please take that phrase and, and keep it with you. Yeah. Now, that's not a very good comment on this song because this song's not one of the extreme ones, but... No, but it is. Uh, the lyrics are pretty. Uh, they pretty much hit that that theme of teen angst. This guy. Uh, I want to make like you a, think we'll about, about cruising around when you're a kid. <laughs> well, talking about a caged tiger. That's what this and guy I, is, right? And I love that line. You know what it's like. <laughs> yeah, because it really isn't teenagers talking to teenagers. It's yeah. former teenagers talking to teenagers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, so that's the last song on side one. Time to flip her over. And when we and flip it over to side two, we've got a hit. A hit. In a while. And it was a so hit. This is, so this was the last song actually written for the album. Um, yeah. And it was the first really big hit off of the record. Uh, it was released as a single in March of 78. Um, <laughs> and by that time, the album had already had a little bit of a of a momentum yeah. behind it. And it peaked at number 11. And you know what surprises me? It How much it sounds like the Eagles? Well, <laughs> <laughs> actually, no. But okay. I, in, until I saw the documentary, yeah. If it were not for the documentary, I would never yeah. have picked that up on my own. Uh, yeah. You guys need to dial up Please Come Home for Christmas and listen to the first part of that song and listen to the first part of this song. Now, the by Please whom? Come Home for Christmas by the Eagles came out after this, but you need well, to I didn't you know should, they covered that. Yeah. You need to listen to the piano on that and it'll you'll be like, holy I, cow. <laughs> I do it now that I'm thinking about it. Yeah, I can see that. But you know, Steinman wrote this. Thinking of it as a as a country western. song, yeah, yeah the country, country song. Yeah. He's, he's going like the Texas plains. He goes, "I'm meatloaf from Texas." And you know, I was just thinking this would be perfect for you know, and uh, yeah, and he does on that documentary, that uh, classic albums documentary. He actually does a kind of lower register, kind of almost a Tex Ritter type um, <laughs> treatment of it. It's like that. it's like Elvis singing the Eagles. <laughs> um, but that's not a bad thing in this point. And, and, uh, and, and the, the thing I love about Rundgren said, you know, he says that this song, what saves a song from being sappy. And you can kind of say that about a lot of the, the ballads on this is a sense of yeah. humor. And then he, he quotes that fantastic line about there ain't no coop to bill hiding in the bottom of a Cracker Jack box. And he goes, <laughs> he goes, oh, you, you can only get away with that in a meatloaf song. <laughs> and it, it's true. I mean, that, yeah. uh, if, if somebody wrote that and took themselves seriously, that would yeah. be the absolute worst. And if uh, you line actually, in all of rock and roll, 
Well, if you look at it, it doesn't make any sense where it comes in. It, yeah. The line before it is there. You're looking for a ruby in a, a mountain of rocks. And then the <laughs> Which is also a is, horrible line. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, this this is a goldmine of, of terrible lines. But. Um, and tongue in cheek. If you're, if you're, yeah. If if you don't understand this, it, that he's poking fun. It's it's weird because the song sounds so earnest, and yeah. at the same time, and people talk, about, oh, it's such a beautiful love song. No, it isn't. No, it's not. Because <laughs> no, it's not. Because the very the third said, thing, you know? the three, the 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 third thing of the two is is awful. <laughs> and then he's just, I need you. Uh, but I don't love. You. I will well, never love. I will never love. That's like you, okay, I think is but, what he but says. this I, is going to be a separate. hamburger. I need a hamburger. Well, I'm not going to commit myself to a hamburger. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, and this is the thing that came to me when I was the uh, this week when I was listening to it. Um, you know, it's the same theme as "Late for the Sky" by Jackson Brown, uh, where you've got two people just you know sitting around trying to talk it out. <laughs> And then you got Meatloaf basically saying, uh, you're kicking me out. Uh, look, it's snowing outside. I really don't want to go. And I want some uh, booty. And I want some, <laughs> hey, yeah, exactly. It's like, maybe hey, it's cold <laughs> outside, but by the way, there's, you, but there's no well. way I'm not, I'm going to love you. So, <laughs> and then he says, it's not my fault. It happened to me when somebody else <laughs> Pulled the same stunt on me. Well, when when Steinman's talking about this song, he says he heard this Elvis song, you know, I, I want you, I need you, I love you. And he's like, someone said, you need to go write a song like that. And he, he said, I got to that third part and I just couldn't do it. You know, <laughs> at that third, I love you. And I just, it just wasn't in me to do it. You know, I had to go uh, a different route. Makes me uh, love the guy. It is such a good song. It is it a is. really, and, really uh, good song. I love thinking about all these people. Uh, trying to hearing it at the roller skating rink thinking it's the most yeah. romantic thing they've ever heard in their life yeah <laughs> okie doke moving on to paradise by the dashboard light <laughs> This is my favorite song in the album. I, I, there is nothing like this in existence. There's nothing like this in existence. I will say though, well, I have two Besides questions for this. you guys. I, I have two questions for you this song. Is this, is this, and I, and I'm not, I'm not putting any judgment on it by asking this question. I just want us to talk about it. Is this a novelty song? Of course. No, I, I, I'm sympathetic to that. And I think it is, but and is that a bad it's not thing? one? It's not no. one that stays inside its stall. This novelty right. song breaks out of its stall and becomes so fun. And so yep. it's, it's such I, a I, universal theme. So <sighs> I, I agree. I agree with you, JM. This song is a blast and it never is not a blast. This but I, may I will be... say I will say this about it, though. I think once you get to the end of it and the jokes out there, it kind of loses a little bit of it, like on repeated listening. It's still I never fun. Lost it. I never, I never, I I've never I lost it. I've never lost it. I, I just is... think, for those of you who have not heard this tune, this is about a young man and a young lady 
who find themselves probably in the back of an automobile, maybe in the front because dashboard light dashboard light is shining upon them. Now, uh, if you recall in the time before you had your own place, certain activities uh, would occur in a automobile. And those are the activities that are spoken of here. There is a conflict between the gentleman and the female about how far events should go and what level of commitment was required for said events to continue. Um, there's some analogy made with a baseball game that I'll have to have one of my companions explain because I don't understand it. But uh, anyway, that's a summation. of So, this. so again, Jim Steinman talking about crash songs, he says on this song, he, he, you know, the other part of rock and roll sort of icon, you know, iconic rock and roll imagery is this uh, is uh, car sex songs, as he says. And so he, again, wanted to go over the top and he's, he says, uh, I wanted a, a car sex song in the extreme one that actually ruins people's lives at the end. Of it. <laughs> um, so I, I want I will say the thing that I find immensely charming about this song is even at the end of it, when the guy is praying for the end of time, he's he's committed. Yep, he's yep. like, I'm he's not, committed. I'm not gonna, I'm not walking away, and then, I'm and, away I'm from not, my commitment. I've, and I've then made this at, commitment, and yeah, and then the the lines that uh, Ellen Foley is singing, it was, it was long ago and far away. It was so much better than it is today. Just and and both of them are just saying well, these. That's these, Meatloaf singing that jam. Meatloaf. No, no, they that, both so. sing it. No, they that's, both. Sing that's it. something that I overlooked, and uh, it wasn't until we started prepping for this. That I know. Oh, yeah, it was that, the glowing on the metal. She sings the glowing on the metal. Yeah, the right. Yes. But both yes, of them right. are praying for the end of time. That's the thing that's important to remember. Uh, and it's for years, only I like thought the, it was just him, but both yeah. of them are ready for the end no, of time it's, so they can get away from each other. But I just, yeah. I always, always, uh, it wasn't until, I don't know, maybe four or five years ago when I heard the song again, it, it struck me that the guy is, uh, <laughs> is, is still is committed. He's going to see it to the end. Well, Which it's I not found, only I find immensely funny. I swear to yeah, like swearing on his mother's grave. Uh that I would love and, you to the end, to the of, end of time. time. And then, but you don't hear what happened after that. But then all you all know is sudden, that all of a sudden it's like the last two minutes of the song is just like <laughs> how horrible life is. Now I'm praying for praying the, for end, the of end of time. time. <laughs> <laughs> so I could well so and, hurry and, up and arrive. To hurry up and so, arrive. So and um, it's perfect for the theme of the whole album because you have yeah. all this nostalgia about yeah, adolescent exactly. years, but at the same time, you're poking fun at it. And yeah. here you got this song. I don't know if he did this on purpose. But this is what happens when you listen to your adolescent self make decisions. Yeah. yeah. And here's an adult looking back at that. Um, it's beautiful the way it sums up the whole oh, movie. This, the, the baseball. Oh, oh yeah. Part. So let's talk about that. That's Phil Rizzuto, who was a yeah. color. Co he was a uh, baseball announcer, color commentary, or actually play-by-play -play guy for the Yankees. Well, he was a yeah, and he was a good baseball. He, he, he was a shortstop, I think. Um, yeah. I think I don't know. Maybe not. I don't know enough. He played about for baseball. the Yankees. Or he the, played for the Yankees. The, he played for the Yankees. And Meatloaf was a Yankee fan, so he wanted to do it. Now, here's what's funny about this. Phil Rizzuto swears he had no idea what he was doing this, what he was doing. Meatloaf says that's BS. He knew exactly BS, yeah, what he was I, doing. And he didn't like he didn't like the flack he got from it because he spent the rest of his career trying to distance himself from the song. Um, yeah. 
but and then the good job. And then the meatloaf meatloaf tried to get him to go on tour with him, and Phil Rizzuto was like, "Ah, that's okay." (laughs) There's this thing called YouTube, and you can get on there and you can see a. uh, Well, I I think it's not a live performance. It's not. Let's talk about that for a minute. But it is so entertaining. Meatloaf got thirty grand to to. Uh, record three songs on a soundstage, this being one of them. And, uh, and, and the reason why that's important is what got this album going in the States was so meatloaf was uh, played a, had a bit part in the Rocky horror picture show. So he records these three, um, these three films, one of them paradise by the dashboard light. And he gets that film of this song to play before showings of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. So it's like a preview before yeah. the movie. So it's it get it gets all it gets distributed in movie theaters and it gets playing and people start connecting it with this cult phenomenon and they start connecting Meatloaf with it and they go out and it it was one of the reasons this album kind of went through the roof in the states and then later on when MTV started because it was so long uh VJs would play it if they had to go to the bathroom or something. They'd put it, slap it on, or do whatever, and that re kind of reinvigorated people's interest in the album. And then in, it, it got another sort of second wind from that as well. And um, it is fun to watch. And I, I'm I'm not sure is. I can tell you why, but well, it is. Carla, De, let's, let's just be honest. Carla Devito is a sight to be seen. And, yeah, and, and she does a great job. Great job. Even well, though she's not the original vocalist. I mean, she is not the most unattractive woman <laughs> in the world. Uh, I'm unable to by. tell things about <laughs> like that about other women other than my wife. But so, uh, yeah, Ellen Foley was a pretty sought after singer. She had kind of her own. Uh, career. This was not something that she was necessarily in. touring on, with a rock band was not something well, she she got it. I think she got a role in a Broadway musical or something yeah, when this yeah. and just decided not to tour. Yeah. So Carla DeVito got the she's the one that when you think of Meatloaf and her and his foil, Carla DeVito is the one she, you, you right. Think of. That's the one you see in your head. And uh, so she would be on stage with Meatloaf just doing all these these crazy things. And and there is a scene or, or part of the, the song where during the baseball part, during the baseball part where they're basically making out on stage. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a pretty I can't imagine how difficult that would be doing that. And then immediately pushing Meatloaf away, getting a microphone in front of you and saying, stop, stop right, right, there. right now. Yeah. I think and, the part um, about pushing meatloaf away would be easy. <laughs> well, if if I was going to say, if you want to see a live version of this, there is a live version of it on the old Gray Whistle test. They did. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Um, uh, meatloaf's voice is a little ragged because he he, he was just We'll get to that. He was, like, he was killing himself on stage, but uh, yeah. I mean, it still sounds great. But it does not. You can tell that he's he's been straining himself on stage. Well, well this this out. this. This album likely would be uh, would be just raked over the coals if it had come out today. Could it be? A, could it been made today? Which it, um, well, I, I mean, they did. Yeah, it, it's it's unlikely. Um, it would be highly offensive, but you can do uh, WAP and no nobody bats an eye. Jesus, <laughs> let me sleep on it. That sleep on it part is just right. 
I'm, I'll give you an answer in the morning. And she's got to know right now. I mean, that's just, to me, that's just. Well, she's not in with that kid and take it any longer. She's not because she's not a dope. That's what's so funny is she's the, she's a smart one here, right? She's like, he's like, come on, come on. We'll talk about it in the morning. Come on. No, you tell me what's it going to be boy. Yes or no. Yeah. Yeah, She's, she's the one in control of the situation. And then they end up praying for the end of time. Steinman is credited on this song for lascivious effects. <laughs> yeah, because he's the one. He's the one doing all the moaning and groaning. In, yeah, he's uh, during the baseball he's the scene. girl. Yeah, he's doing all of that stuff in the uh, in the baseball part. Um, that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> I bet that I bet he had the time of his life doing that too. <laughs> yeah. All right. So moving on to the final song for crying out loud, last song, second side, last song on the album. You know, this is this is Diamond's favorite album. I mean, favorite song on the album. I, as a kid, I did not like this song. I did. I still I don't like it that much, to be honest with you. I didn't like it. I mean, in, in like the first, it's a really long song. What is it like nine minutes? Um, it's such a perfect Diamond title for crying it is out loud. For crying and out then loud, he builds a song off that line. Well, and it's and it's very earnest, with the exception of one line. <laughs> yeah, the, <laughs> with the, the, fa- the faded, faded Levi's, Levi's bursting apart. <laughs> and again, I think that's what gives this song a little bit of its edge. It does, it, it, it does. But it's still, I still think it's a it's a little bit of a downer after what we just went through, and kind of a a weird way to end. But I get I it. wish, I wish that it were a little bit shorter. I it starts off with the piano and meat meatloaf for almost like four minutes. And then it's basically the exact same thing with a full orchestra behind it for the next five minutes. As an adult, this is the thing I, I, I started liking about it is when, when the piano fades out and meatloaf starts coming in with that full orchestra, just his voice in that orchestra to me, that is just, I mean, that's like Frank Sinatra. I really do think this is a one of the highlights of his voice of his of his singing. And I, I, the, the arrangements or the orchestral arrangements are are amazing on this. It's very theatrical. Um, it's very like Avita like or you know, I mean Andrew Lloyd Webber would almost write something like that. Uh if he without would, the Levi's. Is um, he a Wrangler guy? <laughs> he's a lee's lee's gene guy what tony tony mentioned earlier is that meatloaf destroyed his voice he yeah. doesn't have a rock and roll voice but he tried to uh sing like, a rock, and like a rock and roller and, yeah. and that didn't work out we gotta talk about the cover 
Yeah, we do. <laughs> yeah, we do. We got to talk about, and we, you know, when we talk about iconic covers, and and as you just said, Doug, it's absolutely perfect. If you want to get, it's it's first of all, it's illustrated by Richard Corbin, who was a comic book artist who did stuff. He's most famous for doing heavy metal, the heavy metal uh, magazine, uh, illustrated covers and and stories in that. But it is so over the top like everything i mean you if you can't look at that album and and know exactly what to expect when you put it on you're not paying attention (laughs) (laughs) it is exactly what it should be it seems like you couldn't do something like this and not have it be disjointed but everything falls in line perfectly like this is the most normal thing in the world and i when i think of the album cover i think there's I can't imagine an album cover that would that would be more appropriate. I, I, I will say that I think the one downside to the album cover is that people who aren't familiar with the music in between the grooves on this album tend to lump Meatloaf in as a heavy metal guy just on, right. on the basis of the album cover. Yep. And they're so far off from that. Um, <laughs> you know, it's just kind of that's also kind of funny in and of itself, I guess. The inappropriate reaction to this album is uh, is funny on so many levels. So the many- perfect phrase, Doug, inappropriate reaction, because it is it really is a silly, nonsensical. It, it's yeah. goofy the way people react to this album. The yeah. standards, it, it, because it gets held to a standard that it does not need to be held to. Absolutely. Well, it's, 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 it, it is almost like I was thinking about this earlier. It's like somebody reviewing uh, This Is Vinyl Tap and being serious about it. <laughs> uh, this band writes songs that at some point do not uh, really. Oh, you mean this is Spinal Tap? Yeah, I meant uh, I've been ruined by this. Podcast. Well, no, it's funny. I, I thought the exact same thing. I, I thought because uh, uh, let's face it, it, not to the level of this, but the guys in, in Spinal Tap know what they're doing around an instrument. And those some of those songs are yeah. are pretty, pretty uh, like especially stonehenge is pretty spectacular <laughs> but uh but anybody taking that stuff seriously you're absolutely right it's like it just because you were told you weren't told this wasn't serious doesn't mean you have to take it seriously right <laughs> I, I really wish i could just spend the rest of my life making fun of people who really uh they didn't get it it's uh it's almost it, like an inside joke well and it is so con- i think one of the things that pisses people off about this uh, this this album is that it is so competently done yeah I mean, there is there is absolutely it is flawless in its execution i think it's just people who um i they have no joy in their lives i don't know what to say <laughs> I, it's I it's just uh it, it, it's and that's i think that's why this album couldn't be made today it's like they're just People are too people, serious about everything. People just take things so seriously. It's like yep. this is about teenage angst. It's a caricature of teenage angst. And it's it it's it's actually it's it's not written by a teenager. It's written by someone who used to be a teenager. Yeah. And uh I that's what makes me love it so much, is because uh-huh. I remember those feelings and I I think they're ridiculous and I also long for them again. <laughs> Well, and, and yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I'm not going to say anything. I just, I agree. It's, it's silly the way. Um, now, now that being said, there's plenty of people who love this album. Sure, obviously. <laughs> and there's, yeah. and and there's plenty of people 
Well, there's plenty of people who have had, and, and we've talked about this before, who've had sort of second thoughts about their initial reaction to That's it. Right. And I sure. think that yeah. that probably comes from people doing what we've done, which is kind of growing a little older and realizing that uh, they were really, really pretentious jackasses. Yeah. And I don't think we can dismiss the fact that this album came out in 1977 at the peak of looking back at the 50s with reverence. I mean, yeah, Happy sure, Days true. was on. There was this whole sort of these Rocky people Horror that, Picture Show. I mean, it, it, that's well, I don't know if that's reverence, but yeah, it's the same thing. But no, I mean, was, there's this Grease, Shanana, Grease, and Shanana definitely are this kind yeah. of rever, reverential yeah. thing. It was right at the peak of all that. All of these people that had grown up in the '50s were now adults, and they were yearning for this time. And here comes this album that takes advantage of that and kind of flips it on its head. You know couple of things got- that are really important and one is how bad meatloaf is without jim steinman <laughs> how bad jim steinman, jim steinman is without, without uh, meatloaf he got pretty close with bonnie tyler or uh, the, uh yeah, well, well no i'm sorry jim steinman the songwriter uh was extremely successful and this isn't even his most successful uh, with in 1983, he had the number one and number two song of the year. One uh, number one was with Bonnie Tyler. I really need it tonight. Forever's gonna start tonight. Forever's gonna start tonight. Once time I was falling in love, but now I'm only falling apart. nothing i can do a total eclipse of the heart a total eclipse of the heart and uh number two was he kept himself from being number one i don't know if we've encountered that before but jim steinman kept jim steinman from having a number one hit with uh making love out of nothing at all with air supply know how you do it For that year, those were the two top songs, and they're both his. And yeah. he he's got uh Celine we should, Dion. We need Barry to isolate Mello. that. We need to isolate that JM moan when you mentioned air supply. <laughs> <laughs> the guy wrote gigantic hits and he, he wrote did a good songs, but they just I mean, I gotta say, Bali Total Eclipse of the Heart is a is a fine, fine song. Damn well, fine song, but, but well, what about we lose the humor with these others? What about yeah, the uh, the sequel to this? That was a monster hit, well, too. That's, that's what I want to say, is that Jim Steinman put out Bad for Good, and Jim Steinman was the lead vocalist on this. And Well, it, it was actually assembled so that uh, he, he did it for Meatloaf. It was yeah, well, Meatloaf couldn't sing at this point because he destroyed his voice. And, 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 Jim's, and you think... This album cover is something. The Bad for Good <laughs> album cover 
is the most hideous album. We'll cover. we'll put it on, we'll put it on the uh, yeah. on the page for Bad Out of Hell on our website. Yeah, we yeah. do need to do that. It is yeah. it is horrible. And now, if you ever what? Go ahead. Is it a hor- is it a horrible album? I mean, here the record. No, the, I, the I Roll- like the album. His voice, but the just- Rolling, yeah, the Rolling Stone record guide in it, the second edition of the Rolling Stone record guide had one of my favorite reviews, even though I didn't agree with it. So the album said Jim Steinman, bad for good. The single line for the album review was good for nothing, more like it. It's like that uh, that review in Spinal Tap of Shark Sandwich, which I won't <laughs> repeat because this is a family show. But, yeah. <laughs> but the, uh, the, the songs on there are just well, like got the songs on here. And yeah. they're they're great songs. And then later on with Bat Out of Hell 2 or To Hell and Back, uh Meatloaf gets his hands on these songs and uh makes another great another great album. Well that uh, that song, I think that album, the Bat Out of the Bat Out of Hell 2, um, I want to say that had several top ten hits on it. It did. It had that uh I will do anything for love. Which was a monster. Uh, yeah. And I would do anything for love. I'd run right into hell and back. I would do anything for love. I'll never lie to you, and that's a fact. It has um, Out of the Frying Pan and Into the Fire, which I guess is my favorite. Uh, Meatloaf song. song or Steinman yeah. song. It's it's wonderful. And anyway, all right, Jim well, Steinman, uh, died uh this year and yeah it was uh he had a thing about it because he had it he had a stroke and uh when his first one no he 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 did it's unfortunate when you see somebody who was so when you see those early videos of him so full of life and then see him sort of at this end part you know just sort of struggling with that but yeah, and, he and it's, not... it's so ironic that uh, the skinny guy John uh, Jim Steinman yeah. dies, and Meatloaf's still trucking along just fine. And he yeah. lives not too far from us. Is that right? Yeah. He lives in the he lives out in the hill country. Yeah, he really? lives outside of Dripping Springs. Well, we'll have to go tell him that he's been honored by our podcast. <laughs> well, I'm sure, I'm sure people be will be excited. People will be screaming it from the heights, and he'll hear about it. All right, boys, this is where we do our ratings. We do two ratings, one as a critic and one as uh, whether or not we'll listen to this album again. Um, I'm going to start with our humble producer, Jonathan J.M. Rowe. Would you like to give us your two ratings, please? Okay, as a hardcore critic, I'm going to give it a 4.8. I don't think there's really anything that's flawed about this. There are a couple of times where i think the lyrics could have been a little bit better and they they kind of lose me but 
other than that, I just think it's almost a flawless album. And I think this is, this may be Todd Rundgren's best job as a producer and as a musician on an album. I think he did a great job uh, playing guitar on this. He, he does get lost. He does get lost in the conversation about the other two people, but he's definitely as integral a part of the success yeah. of this album as they are. Yeah. And as a fan, I'm going to give it a 4.5. This is an album that I, like I told you guys before, when I was a, you know, a teenager thinking that I needed to hate albums that weren't <laughs> earnest. Um, it was a guilty pleasure. Uh, but now I'm, I'm now that I'm older and just kind of realized that uh, this was a much more mature album than I thought it was. Um, I'm going to give it a, a 4.5. And it's, it's definitely something that I listen to. I'm like I'm never mad when this album comes on. It's hard to be. How can you be? Yeah. yeah it's a difficult um, album to be. All right. Well, thanks, Jam. I'm going to go to me next and save the uh, album picker for the last. Um, as a critic, this this album did everything these guys set out to do with this album. It's hard to say that. Uh, I mean, it, it seems like every person involved in this um, that was kind of in the know had a vision. And it's hard to say that this album didn't meet that um, from the album cover to the songs, to the arrangements, to the lyrics, to the vocals, production, everything. Um that being said, you know, I, I don't think every album deserves a every great album deserves a five. Those are kind of held in high, high esteem. Um, I, I'd say this is uh from a critical point of view, and there's no knock on it because it's not a five, but I'd give it a I'd give it a four point five. Um and then in terms of me listening to it again, uh, unlike you two guys, I, I'm a latecomer to this. I didn't I didn't listen to this a whole lot as a kid, nor did I listen to it a whole lot as an adult until fairly recently. Um, I had a blast. This was a lot of fun. And as I was saying to Doug, I think Jam, when you were off someplace, uh, um, it was a, it was a a, a bit of a. Uh, <laughs> this is also going to get my friend uh, Jeff probably angry at me, but it was a little bit of a relief from the John Cale, the feeling I got from listening to the John Cale album. <laughs> um, but that being said, uh, there are some things on it that uh, I, th- I think just aren't my cup of tea. Um, so I probably I'd give it a 4.1 in terms of me listening to it again. So, all right, Doug, here you go. Well, um, JM, JM hit my heartless critic, uh, rating four, eight, I think is, I think that's the right rating. Uh, much of that is because of originality. And much of it is because of flawless execution, which is just a big part. Un- unbelievable that they, they, they put out this over the top thing with, I, I, I don't understand why all these top rated guys show up on this album and yeah, the execution, the, the mix is just perfect for, um, my personal rating uh this is an emotional album it's it's a nostalgic album and uh i want to go to i'm gonna say four nine but that's only because i'm saving myself a point uh because 
I know it's not perfect, but gosh, I love it. And I love the way it digs deep inside of me and pulls out that adolescent idiot that used to have so much fun romanticizing about love that survives past death and all that other nonsense. Uh, just crazy about this record. All right. Well, thank you, Doug. Um, all right. So this is the part where we have a recommendation. So I'm going to ask Tony, Tony, do you have a recommendation? Well, yes, Tony, I have a recommendation. We've done this from time to time where we refer people to something we've watched that we found insightful. Uh, JM talked a lot about the classic albums, Meat, Meatloaf, uh, Bad Out of Hell classic albums. I, I think it's well worth watching. It's uh, There are bits in it where Meatloaf is at the mixing board and he's, and he's, uh, He's pulling, you know, bits of the mixing out, out in and out, and he sings along with it. And there's something immensely charming about watching the amount of joy he has in revisiting this album. Same thing with Steinman when he's talking about. Same thing with Rundgren. They all yeah. three of them just look like they're just they they just still look back on this album as something that they just had the most fun, yeah. and and they look finally back on it. If you want to see guys uh, talking about and, and you know the enjoying the art of making making music it's well worth watching so it's uh it's a classic yeah. albums i think it's a vh1 series um you can get you can watch it on amazon probably even on youtube um and we'll post it on our website too a link to it so you can get to it well tapters we hope you enjoyed tonight's look at meatloaf's bat out of hell next week we're going to be looking at a 1995 album by the jayhawks tomorrow the green grass Look us up on Facebook and Instagram, and we're on Twitter at Tapping Vinyl. And be sure to visit our new webpage, www.tappingvinyl.com. There you'll find links to all our episodes, as well as links to the albums we talk about on the show. And you can drop us a line with a comment or a suggestion there. So for our host, Doug Cooper, our co-host, Tony Slagle, and me, your humble producer, Jonathan J.M. Rowe. Good night from This Is Vinyl Tap, where all the podcasts go to 11. And reminding you, you ain't finding a Coupe de Ville at the bottom of a Cracker Jacks box. (laughs) 